There we go. Hey, Jimmy. Welcome. How you doing? It's so good to see you, man. What's going it's, on? Well, likewise. You're calling from Slovenia. It's in the evening. Yes, I am. Wow. Congratulations for uh, making that trip. Has that been something in the works for a while that you've been able to take now? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Jimmy, uh, everybody, everybody should take a long vacation at least once in their life. <laughs> uh, right now, I'm in Blade, Slovenia. It's uh, a resort area. And it, it's it's stunningly beautiful. Just Google Lake Bled, B-L-E-D, and prepare to have your jaw to drop because <laughs> it's just unbelievable here. And we've been here since the first of the month, and we're going to be here through the end of the month. Oh, and wow. this all took place before we spent two months in Ljubljana, Slovenia, which was unbelievably good it was better than we could possibly have hoped for now what made slovenia the place to to go out of all the places that you could go um i'm half slovene my father okay. was full slovene he was the son one son of two immigrants that came over on the boat in 1906 and 1907 they came across separately Okay. So my dad was first generation American. He was full blood Slovene. And um, actually in 1964, 1965, my dad had a Fulbright uh, to study Slovene theater here in the country. Oh, and he, wow. he, brought us, he brought us all, me, my mom, my brother, and myself. And we spent here a, a full year while dad studied at the university. Uh, and I took violin lessons. <laughs> uh, they tried to put me in the public school and it didn't work because I didn't speak the language. So my dad latched on to a couple of music professors. I took violin lessons and my brother took French horn lessons. <laughs> and that's what we did while we were over here in 1964-65. Do you speak any of the language at all or no? Well, I tell you what, in 64-65, I had a decent start, but just like anything else, you don't use it. It goes away <laughs> pretty quickly. Uh, so I tried to do an online Slovene course and, you know, I'm, I'm 68 years old and it, the, the old mind just doesn't work as nimbly as the, as the young mind. So I, I, <laughs> I, I'm able to, you know, tell people, uh, hi, uh, good day. Um, I'm able to say please and thank you. And, uh, <laughs> right. but I tell you what people here, they, they speak English almost universally. Everybody in Europe speaks at least two or three languages. Yeah. And English is kind of the worldwide standard now. But I feel like I'm not holding up my end of the bargain by trying to learn more <laughs> of their language. And I tell you what, it goes a long way if you speak Slovene to, uh, to the locals here because they're, they're, they're gratified that you took at least some effort to know uh, the, the yeah. hometown rules. Well, the other folks that I've talked to that have lived abroad have mostly been basketball players, and, and they've testified to the fact that um, when you can speak the language to the fans, that makes you so much more appealing in the long term. And um, with everything that's happened, and we'll get into some political stuff today, uh, you know, it, it shows me how ignorant uh, most Americans are to, to the rest of the world. <laughs> and you know what? Ignorance, ignorance is fixable. You yes. know, you say that word and a lot of people might go, oh, wow, how dare you say that about Americans? 
you know, ignorance is the absence of knowledge. And I'm ignorant about a lot of things, and I'll admit it, but uh, it's not a bad thing to be ignorant. It's it's fixable, but it takes effort to fix it. And there, I think we might be on to a a problem. Uh, A lot of Americans, a lot of people just don't want to do the work. Yeah. to reap the rewards so <laughs> there's nothing wrong with being ignorant you, you can do something about that well the context how, how we know each other dr gobitz is one of my professors from the university of indianapolis and doc g actually retired from teaching while i was a student at the university of indianapolis so he's a couple years removed from that um and i just wanted to know because i have teaching history in my family my grandmother was a yearbook teacher and my aunt is a college professor did you have a family history of, of teaching in the family? Yes, I did. Yeah. Um, my father was a, a teacher. As I indicated, he studied uh, here in Ljubljana in, in Slovenia for uh, okay. a degree that he eventually did not earn, uh, which was a great frustration for him. But my dad was a teacher. He started out in high school. Uh, he had two or three, three or four high school jobs before he got his first college teaching job yeah. at Northeastern State in Oklahoma in the grand town of Tahlequah, the home of the Cherokee Nation, and it still is. Uh, and then my dad got a job uh, in his hometown. It was his dream job at Pittsburgh State University, uh, and he taught there until he retired in 19... 19- 80, I think 87 <laughs> or something like that. Um, were you a good student yourself when thinking back <laughs> to your academia? <laughs> or no? uh, I, I was a, a good student for four years, but, <laughs> but I was on the five and a half year plan. <laughs> mm-hmm. The first three semesters of my undergraduate experience were, was uh, regrettable. It was woeful. Uh, I had no earthly clue what I was doing in college, uh, and I partied. I partied a lot. I partied hard, <laughs> just like uh, a lot of my uh, a lot of my friends did. And uh, you know, some days I went to class, some days I didn't go to class. So yeah. I know the slacker behavior pretty well because I was one. And then I don't know, a light bulb just went on for me, and I thought, you know what? If I want to do something with life, I'm going to have to take something seriously. And gee, <laughs> I'm going to college. So I might as well take that seriously. Uh, and yeah. from, from that point on, you know, I, I, I did okay. But, so you know, was, initially, I was terrible. Being a professor and being on a faculty, I mean, was that the initial plan? Or I, I want to be a media star first, and then I'll teach later. It, it, it was all part and parcel of the same plan. Um, I got my first job in radio in 1971. I think I was still... I was still in high school at that point in time. Uh, I got a, a job at my local uh, AM radio station, 1,000 watt daytime, 250 watt <laughs> at night. I mean, it went to our backyards and that's about all. Uh, but <laughs> I, had a, I had a friend who worked there and he got me a job and uh, I'd been working in radio ever since from 1971 until 1986. Um, and all along, you know, I, I studied at the university level in the in the 70s. I got a master's degree in uh, 1980, and I uh, I thought, you know what, I'm gonna combine my master's degree with years of professional experience, and I want to get a job teaching at a college somewhere. 
Yeah. Uh, so I spent the next six years in the radio business, just learning what went on in the radio business. And then in 1986, I uh, was given an opportunity to teach at my alma mater because the person that had the, uh, the, the faculty line at that point in time, he quit on very late notice. So they were scrambling. <laughs> I, was, I was plan Z. And they said, okay, Rob, we'll, we'll give you a one-year contract. It actually turned into two-year contract because they couldn't fill the position even with the year's notice. Right. So I did that for two years. And that was one of the best two-year stretches of my life because I really did understand at that point how uh, a university operated and what uh, everybody's roles were supposed to be. It was, it was a very good time uh, for me. So at that point, I went back to grad school at the University of Oklahoma to get my PhD. And uh -huh. then after I graduated, I got my job, my first job out of college at the University of Indianapolis, which <laughs> is where I met you, Mr. Jimmy. That's right, man. Um, what kind of a person does it take to be a professor? Because, you know, I've thought about going into it, uh, but with the pandemic and shootings happening at the frequency that they are it's it's kind of a daunting <laughs> thing for me to even think about uh and, and i'm just being real with you you know yeah um what does it take to be a university professor yeah um, just like so many other ventures in life it doesn't pay well so you have to walk <laughs> into it knowing that you're going to work your ass off uh and it's not going to wheel, you know, yield you a lot of uh, dough at the end. It's a calling, just like a lot of other things are a calling. Who in their right mind would teach middle school in, in a public school setting? <laughs> who, who in their right mind would do that? I'll tell you who, the people who are called to do that. So college is a little different um, because the, uh, the student body isn't forced to be there. Right. Like, you know, in, in junior high and uh, in high school. But it, it takes a person that's dedicated to a cause of some kind. Uh, most teachers that I know are, are uh, kind of mobilized by the call simply to help kids. You know, and if you talk to any high school teacher, you know, more times than not, I think you'd get the answer from them that they really just want to work with kids. They want to help them prepare themselves for a better future. Yeah. And I think that is a, a laudable uh, motivation. What are uh, what would you say are the educational requirements? I mean, I, I don't know what the uh, bar is now to, to become a teacher, but you probably you have to at least get a master's degree and move on from there, right? It uh, depends on the kind of job that you're looking for, uh, and it depends on how dedicated you are to going to school to get the degrees required yeah. a lot of uh, universities are getting away from tenure track positions which is the kind that i had tenure is kind of an agreement between the university and the faculty member that they're they're willing to stick to each other for the long term so when you get tenure at a university that's kind of a marriage in a way <laughs> now most universities are going away from the tenure track system including University of Indianapolis. They're uh, coming up with all sorts of non-tenure faculty positions. Uh, and they're doing that, uh, I think, in the face of having 
you know, a, a shortage of people that have the degrees to actually take tenure track lines and the squeeze by administrations to make dollars stretch more. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, if you hire a tenure track professor, you're, they're going to have to get paid like, say, $75,000 a year to start or something like that. For non-tenure track professors, they can get them for less, for 50000 bucks a year. So if you have one, if you have three tenure track positions, then you can make one of them non-tenure track. You can make, you get the idea. You can, you can hire more people on non-tenure track lines, and that works for the university. President Biden just introduced some debt relief for a lot of the country uh, here in the United States. And I know you're a, a college professor and, and you want to promote the, the good of college education, but yeah. is it worth the price? Uh, because it is a daunting cost for some people, in your view. Um, <clears throat> uh, there are, there's a, a school of thought that suggests that the reason that you should go to college is so you'll get a better paying job. I think that puts the cart before the horse. The reason that people will get better, better paying jobs is because they know stuff and because they can do stuff, okay? The degree itself doesn't do bupkis except for providing a minimum level of qualification stated for some jobs. But when you graduate, and if you don't know anything, you've got the degree in hand, but you're still going to have problems in life because nobody's going to hire you because you don't have skills and you didn't take lessons seriously. You don't know anything. So the, the value of a college degree isn't to get you a better paying job. And I tell that to incoming freshmen. I told that to prospective students that, you know, the the value of a college degree is you get to learn a lot of stuff about a lot of stuff. And that's the value of a college degree. Is it worth it? That's an individual call. Depends on what it is you want to do. And believe me, man, I talked to a lot of students who had no flipping clue what they wanted to do uh, four years after, you know, entering the university. I don't know what I want to do. Well, you know, this is a good place to discover some of those things. And you can discover lots of places to work outside the college uh, atmosphere right. and save money at the same time. But um, the, the undergraduate university uh, experience is unlike any other experience that you'll get anywhere in the face of the planet. Mm -hmm. And I still believe it's an essential part of a well-rounded individual. So I'm, I'm still a big believer. <laughs> Well, and I, I learned to appreciate what, at least what I gained from you, Andy, after I was removed. I mean, I remember saying in my senior speech at the dinner, I don't know what I'm going to do uh, necessarily, but I know I'm going to be prepared for whatever that is. And say what you want about a communication degree or journalism, that taught me the value of democracy and music. I mean, things that will sustain us through time. I mean, that that itself, I think is the bigger picture uh, is what I'm seeing now yeah. as a 27 year old, you know? <laughs> sure. Yeah. You never know what you're going to learn and yeah. you never know what's going to stick with you. So, you know, you graduated and Jimmy, you were an excellent student. I really enjoyed having you in class oh, because you participated same, and, and you, you were willing to challenge thought. And that's, that's, that's a, an excellent thing, but you know, students typically learn stuff that they don't expect. 
they'll right. take a class in biology or something like that and they'll learn something about the food chain that really stuck with them and you know pretty soon you know they're working for environmental protection in some way it, it, it the the stuff that you learn in the university is by design broad and we can't guarantee what you'll learn that will light your fire right but when something does man you have got valuable training behind you well, and what I've learned from the podcast, and I certainly learned it uh, at UND, I've just learned it as we've grown up a little bit. What did you learn about yourself being a teacher, being around all, all different types of personalities? Um, it, it, the lesson that I am a very limited person came crashing down on me <laughs> the, the first few times I was in the classroom. I remember stepping into the classroom for the first time without you know, uh, a supervising instructor when it was just me and the students. I was teaching a basic speech class. Oh. This would have been in 1980, this would have been 1979. And I was absolutely terrified. Um, back then, my age was closer to the students that I was teaching. So I, I just felt like, you know, I felt like, uh, like, man, I don't know a lot more than these kids do. But in fact, I did. I didn't give myself enough credit for that. But uh, it, it quickly dawned on me that I had a lot of learning to do even still uh, in order to teach classes. You got to know stuff upside down, right side out. You got to know your stuff. So I prepped, I prepped real, real hard. Uh, and I was, uh, I, was, I was pleased that I was able to meet the challenge. So I learned early on that I, my capacity was very limited and I needed to work hard to, to, to get good at what it is that I wanted to do. And I, I think I, I did. I think I got there and I have a, a nice career behind me to look back on and, yeah. and, and reflect positively. <laughs> you know, it's, it's sort of, I think of like Michael Jordan trying to be a general manager. When, when you're a teacher and you're the master in comparison to your students it's sometimes hard to say just do it like me i mean you have to sort of <laughs> reframe everything that you've learned in a more simplistic way and that that to me is the most valuable thing of education is you don't have to know the right answer but you have to know how to find the right answer and deliver it in a way that's understandable <laughs> we said uh, back in the 80s when we recognized the computer age was was kind of dawning on us that a critical component of literacy was the ability to know where to get information, information retrieval. Yeah. Uh, and that's why, you know, we have lessons in struggling with databases to find articles on a particular topic. Oh. The, what, what, what's important about that? Well, the, the material itself is important, sure, but the process of digging for information is universally applicable. So, uh, it's it's not just the lesson content that we're interested in. It was the process to get there. And, uh, uh, you know, some people, you, you mentioned about coaches who are great players. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of really great athletes that later turned to coaching and weren't able to do it. <laughs> right. Then there are those, you know, marginal athletes that maybe were on their college B squad that understood the game and had the, the, the skill to communicate that to other players and they kind of flourish. So 
you know, being a being great at something doesn't guarantee you're going to be a, a good teacher. Well, and I see, I grew up uh, respecting the profession that is a journalist. I mean, th- that came with some oh, man. prestige uh, back in the day. And a major issue that the United States is dealing with is like misinformation um, from Fox News and, and the right. So how do we combat that in, in your view? <laughs> that's that's a really broad question that, that is a big question that we're really going to have to wrestle with um on a grand scale uh i i think what has to happen is that journalists still have to do journalism they still have to understand uh the uh, economic system in which we live the uh, political system in which we live they need to understand history they need to understand sociology in order to cover news appropriately. That still has to happen. The medium will change. Uh, we've seen the newspaper go from the medium of choice to basically a boutique uh, uh, sort of <laughs> yes. medium. Yeah, it's sure. it, they're headed that direction. Um, the, the Indianapolis Star is the Indi- you know the daily paper that I take, and mm-hmm. they effectively priced out of uh, the market people r- receiving their print paper. It costs a lot of money to subscribe to their print version of the paper. They're chasing people away from that form of delivery, hoping to move them to digital platforms. And guess what? Some people ain't going to make it. Some mm-hmm. people will just say, screw it. I'm not going to read the paper. That's really bad. But <laughs> that, that segment of population is going to die off because for you and kids your age, the, the computer, the cell phone, they're all native uh, uh, tools for you. You know how to yeah. work those tools. But, you know, people my age, people uh, that, that are a bit older that you know, they, they see the 12 flashing on the VCR <laughs> and they go, hey, grandson, can you come fix this? They, they don't cotton well the technology. And those are the people that are going to get lost. So, so they turn to an easy medium to get news. Right. And television is an easy medium from which to get news. Right. But you got to be careful. So on the macro scale, uh, the, 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 on the micro scale, the macro scale is journalists still have to do their job, and we're in deep doo doo if they don't do their job. <laughs> yeah. But on a on a micro scale, each individual person as a news consumer has got to apply critical thought, and I that's a big jump. It, teaching <laughs> people to be critical thinkers. When they already think they are critical thinkers, it's tough to show them that they're not. Um, so th- there are a bazillion ways to approach the product, the, the problem from, from that perspective. But here's what I have been doing on a, a this is a microscopic level. Okay. Whenever I get into a, a, a conversation with somebody of a different political stripe, I'll, I'll let them... <laughs> I'll let them vent. I'll let them say their slogans. They're like five or six bullet points. And then, then I'll respond by saying, um, let's take one of those topics that you just mentioned and, and drill down into it. And I, I really want to understand your position. So can you tell me how you came to this conclusion that Hunter Biden 
is really a criminal and that we need to throw the full force of the, the Justice Department to find out what he did. Can you do that for me? Can you help me understand your position? And I'm, I've just started to do that, and I hope it's a, a good technique. I'll let you know how it goes. Well, you know, the, the issue is that Don, that Don Jr. is coked out of his mind. You know, every uh, everything that they throw the Democrats' way is something that they themselves have done. And something that bothers me, uh, just because I was, I idolized like Dan Rather. You know, he was my hero. Mm -hmm. I would have had a poster of Dan Rather in my in my room growing up. Um, you know, news is not supposed to invoke feelings beyond, okay, that's that's what happened. And doesn't the term news itself in the EWS have to be protected um, <laughs> as a to prevent people from digesting it as, oh, this is facts? <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. I, I scream at the television a lot when I watch news. Uh, I, when, when they start getting into a feature piece, you know, I... I turn to my wife and I say, "Is are they going to give this five minutes of coverage? I want to know what happened in the state house today. Yeah. I want to know what our representatives were doing. I don't want to see this story about somebody's three-legged dog and how it's you know adapted well to its new environment. I I need to know what has been going on that is important. And uh, you put your finger on a very important uh, point, uh, Jimmy. You said." The uh, news is all about feelings now. Uh, I think it goes beyond just simple news production. I think we have a whole two, three generations worth of citizens that are, you know, voters that base all of their decisions on how they feel. Yes. I think that the, the notion of using, again, critical reasoning, critical thinking. To, to apply a rigorous uh, method of determining what's worth and what's not worth. I, I think we're losing track of that. We are so motivated to satisfy our feelings mm. that we're losing sight of a lot of very important stuff. And I, I think that's a, a, another big challenge that we're facing right now. Well, and oddly enough, we're talking on the 21st anniversary of 9-11 uh, mm -hmm. that happened. And, you know, thinking back, uh, Dick Cheney was the guy that, that got that war machine going. And now the daughter of Darth Vader is not conservative enough for them. I mean, what what a transformation with the GOP and how I, far they've drifted. I would never, ever have predicted that Liz yeah. Cheney would be drummed out of the Republican Party because <laughs> she's not conservative enough. I never would have predicted this. Yeah. And, you know, it didn't do any good for Dick Cheney to support Liz's candidacy by, you know, saying Trump is a, a bad thing. We need to steer away from him. That didn't work. I cannot believe what has happened to the Republican Party. You know, I, I, I still think there are some reasonable Republicans out there. And I so long for the days when compromise was achievable, uh, when compromise was the rule. Yeah. But now it's, it's just not. And we've got to find a way to address this problem. Well, and I'm, I'm just calling a spade a spade. <laughs> MAGA is what we fought in Afghanistan for 20 years. It's just homegrown here. Uh, yeah. You know, switch switch the flags from, you know, uh, 
Middle East to Stars and Stripes, and it's the same deal. So, yeah. Do you have any recollection of 9-11? Only that it was not good. You know, I was only about yeah. seven years old, and I knew that a lot okay. of people had died at the time. So, I was uh, teaching that day, and um, I was listening to the radio, and the announcer said, you know, there, there's the report out of New York that a plane's crashed into a building. And, you know, instantly, because I'm listening to radio, I begin to build a mental picture of that. And uh, I, I thought, wow, that's bad. So I, I went in and turned on the television and I, I saw the second plane live fly into the, the, the second building. And at that point, I thought, this is going to be bad. So uh, I dropped everything. I, I got to school. I didn't know how to teach classes. Uh, I was beside myself. I couldn't reason my way through it. And there were some professors who, being much better at what it is they do than, than I, they were able to make it teaching uh, time, to make it a teaching moment. I was too shaken. Too shaken. Uh, I, I, I remember walking around for days just kind of going, I, I can't get my mind around this. Yeah. It was a huge, huge event. And it led directly to, unhappily, uh, uh, Dick Cheney's uh, aggression in the Middle East. We should never, ever have gone into uh, Iraq. And there's some thought now that, that kind of justifies the conclusion, maybe we shouldn't even have gone into Afghanistan. Mm. But it was a, a, a country-changing event, and the path we took is it led us to where we are today. Take me back to this time because I, I wasn't even alive. Uh, you know, one of the things that terrified, and I mean terrified the right, was Jimmy Carter and the move he wanted to make away from fossil fuels, big business, all that. He wanted to do away with that. And ever since, you know, we've, we've had Al Gore, we've had Obama, we've had Hillary pushing the same stuff and the right just gets more extreme because it's all about dollars and cents to them at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. Well, this is a, a clear case in which uh, the special interests of the, the, the free market yeah. have completely corrupted the public good. It's propaganda. It's willful ignorance. Uh, and they, I, I don't know where the, the, the lobbyists find guys like Josh Hawley to actually run for, you know, Senate and actually win. I don't, I don't know how they do this, but they have been able to call the shots for a long time. They're very entrenched. They're very good at what they do. They're very well funded, but people buy it. And I'm ever so distressed about what's <laughs> happening to the environment. I'm serious about this. Yeah. I think we are in a no-win situation here. The earth is baking before our very eyes. It's burning up. Uh, I, have you heard the news about Las Vegas? Uh, about a month ago, I heard that they were uh, on a 30-day supply of water. That was about a month ago, and I'm just wondering how people in Las Vegas are doing. They're running out of water. Yeah. You cannot sustain a community without water and the the heat out west this summer has been unbearable 
and people are going to have to start moving from California to somewhere where there is water. Yeah. What we have done to the planet is dastardly. We have to do something fast. And I don't know what that is, but I tell you what, I'm, I'm thinking about selling my car and my beloved motorcycle <laughs> to get oh, an man. electric car. I feel like I need to do something about this. Well, and as far as the, the future of the country, we, I know you brought it up in several of your classes. Uh, how worried are you about gerrymandering? Because as many people as we can get registered to vote, uh, it's simply a matter of getting, you know, 10, 000, a microcosm of the population to vote a certain way. It's not about total numbers. Yeah, it's not. Uh, and it's engineerable. You can engineer an election not by fraud, but by gerrymandering. I, I remember when I first learned what gerrymandering was, and I was shocked. I thought, I thought we were in a democracy where you know votes counted. But my dad explained it to me and said, "Well, you know, it's the party in power that has the the, the authority to to change district lines." And I thought that's that's not right. Mm -hmm. uh, and that gut reaction, I couldn't have been more than a teenager, and that gut reaction uh, still rings true to me today. This cannot be something a, a, a party that's in power does unilaterally. This has to be in bipartisan, nonpartisan hands. It just has to be, and I, I think that there's some momentum now, Jimmy, for uh, getting something done more so than you know 20 years ago i, I think there's some yeah. momentum but it's got to happen it just has to happen the one thing that does give me some solace is that if the gop is mad and running scared which i think they are then what we want in the long term is already starting to cement a little i mean we are moving in a positive direction but uh, like you said the, the earth is baking before our very eyes the the ocean itself was on fire not too long ago. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's a daunting task to confront <laughs> as a young man. Uh, you know? There are so many things about modern life that we need to pay uh, attention to. And, you know, it, it, the environment is pretty immediate. Gerrymandering, I suppose, could wait a little while. <laughs> but we have got to right. do something about the environment. I was, I was really glad to see the bill pass a few weeks ago to uh, address that. It's not enough, though. But it's better than nothing. Well, and I find it funny, too, how much is interconnected to Indiana, because uh, James Bopp was the lawyer that yeah. argued uh, on behalf yeah. of businesses for the dark money and like Citizens United ruling, yeah. which Citizens really, United, right? you know, takes away even more rights of individual people. <laughs> Citizens United, you know, and there are going to be gadflies out there that press lawsuits because they know they've got some kind of an angle and they're doing it not for public good, but for individual gain. His notoriety just shot through the roof uh, when that court case was heard and decided by the Supreme Court. I can't think of a, a more dastardly decision by the Supreme Court than that one. And they've made some real boners in the past year or two or so. As far as I've asked other folks this who are working in politics every day to make this better, uh, how do we undo the resentment that we've seen for a long time? How do we get toward I'm, a path of progress? I, I, I'd be interested to hear what the, your friends in politics have to say. How do we get 
to a point where we listen to each other, this divisiveness, it's going to kill us. Uh, I, I think there are several uh, ways to address it. And some of them we can do willfully. It's, mm -hmm. the, it's the ones that we won't have any control over that worry me. We're getting to a point where nothing is going to get done in Congress because of this deep, deep division. While we have all these daunting problems that need addressing now, as soon as we start running out of water, uh, then chaos will reign. Social uh, uh, mores will break down. All of a sudden, murder might be an acceptable solution to provide your family with the resources it needs. Uh, that kind of chaos, that kind of social disintegration might be enough to get us to think in more <laughs> unified terms. Okay. But I, you know what? I, I thought COVID was going to be the, yeah. the, the big motivator for us. I thought, you know, we've got this division and now we've got this pandemic that's killing everybody. So this will surely shake people up enough to, you know, get out of this my camp versus your camp. And it just got worse. And the worst president in conception was, <laughs> was pushing all of the wrong buttons, telling people it came from China. We got to blame China. It's, it's a fiction. There, there's no such thing as COVID. There's just so much misinformation that could, had we had a different president, had we had Hillary's president, things would have turned out differently. I don't know how, but it was such a hallmark event when, when, when Trump started going aggressively against uh, counter, against uh, what his uh, people were telling him at like the CDC. I was uh, in the WICR studios the night that he won. I was doing election coverage and my, my faith in God was tested. I'm like, what in the past, you know, but the other thing I'm worried about is as bad as it is on the right, you've got guys like Andrew Yang and mm -hmm. Jill Stein the last time these stop gaps that, that are going to throw it to the GOP because morons don't realize Democrats are our only option in a two-party system. <laughs> well, Andrew Yang is up to uh, forming a third party. You know. Right, yeah. Uh, he's, uh, he's doing the, the forward party. And I, I joined their mailing list because I'm interested in what they have to say. So far in their email messages to me, the only thing they have been saying is, please donate to our cause. Uh, I'm waiting for, for policy positions. I'm waiting to hear what their platform is. Yes. And there hasn't been much movement on that. Maybe I haven't dug for it uh, enough. But I tell you what, I've been busy since July 7. I'm in Europe. <laughs> well, I'm having the time of my life. I would try and stay over there. You know, if you can reserve the bungalow <laughs> for a couple more months, just see how it unfolds over here. Um, you know, Doc G, I, I grew up with uh, with dad being a hippie in the 1960s, and I, I've gravitated toward Santana and, and Jimi Hendrix, the, the guys from, from that era. This is not a time of a great soundtrack. Uh, I find it funny that I keep drifting back to the Woodstock time. Do you, do you see it? of Woodstock being possible in 2022? I feel like something like no. that could help. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. Um, part yeah. of the problem is that uh, we get our information and our music from such diverse sources. 
yeah. uh, back in the day, back in you know '69, where when Woodstock, we we all got music from the radio, we got music from record stores, and yeah. that's about it. Mm-hmm. So today, how many how many sources do you tap into to get yeah. music? There are more than we can understand. So. Um, the fact is everybody's listening to different stuff now with the exception of, you know, a handful of mega hits, but everybody's listening to, dip, to stuff that nobody else is listening to. Uh, I really do hope the two um, uh, festivals in Indianapolis that just took place, the Infest, or I can't remember, yeah. the one with jo- uh, Paul Lenotes and uh, John Fogarty, Cage the Elephant the, the, at the fairgrounds. I really hope that gets traction. And, and, you know, is a repeating success. There was also a festival in Garfield Park earlier in the summer that I, I truly hope is a, a success, but there is no real unity in what it is people are listening to anymore. And while social pressure creates good art sometimes, the art that is being created is so diffused that critical mass, critical social mass is is going to be hard to reach. Are you which, still? Which speaks uh, directly to, to big events like Woodstock. Totally. I uh, I know that you're a musician yourself. Is Acoustic Catfish still alive and well? Uh, they are, uh, and they're doing it without me. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, no, that's okay. Uh, I I I bowed out this year because uh, I had extensive travel plans. Yeah. I, I was going to be gone for three months in the summer and the three months that where we get the most gigs. So I told them early uh, that, you know, I would completely understand it if you guys wanted to find somebody for this coming year, work with them in, in the cold months while, you know, practice time is available uh-huh. and then just stay that way for a year. And that's what has happened. Uh, I haven't heard them. Uh, I've been away. Yeah. Uh, but when I get back to Indianapolis in October, uh, I, I hope to be able to check them out and find out what's going. And what happens after that is really up to everybody to negotiate. We we don't have a plan at this point. And yeah. I'm, I'm all ears. You know, I don't know <laughs> exactly what will happen. But I know one thing. I really do want to continue playing music. Uh, because it's just part of my brain, and <laughs> they're, they're, I need to pay attention to that. What instruments do you play? Is it only? Uh, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, <clears throat> no, I, that's that's fine. I I'm an acoustic guitar player by preference, but uh, of course, guitar is the same for uh, acoustics and lead and uh, electrics. So I've got. I don't know, eight or 10 acoustics and about eight or 10 electric guitars. I've got a bass guitar. I can uh, I can be a bass player in a pinch. I took violin lessons in 1964, 65, yes. and I bought a fiddle to try and get back into it. And I did for a little while, but I wasn't very good. It takes practice. Uh, and I can also play a little bit of mandolin, but it's the same thing as violin. If you don't do it a lot, then you're not gonna get much better at it. Uh, <laughs> I uh, I played trumpet in uh, junior high school and high school. Okay, uh, but I haven't touched a trumpet in forever. It's funny you mentioned violin. Uh, the first time that Dad ever saw a musician that he can recall, he was in second grade and a guy played violin, 
first class and it, it just blew him away and ever since then he was a an acoustic guitar player and uh harmonica that those were his two instruments so your dad was a dude oh he yeah he was out there um yeah. I, I would be remiss too um not talking about uh bad music that was some one of your favorite things uh it has to be a genuine attempt at good music uh but it's yes. it's it's music that is recorded and is is uh objectively bad have you added to your archives since i've seen you no um probably so but it, <laughs> now it's more you know i'll discover one or two cuts in isolation uh, and, you know, since everything is online, if I, if I don't like record it and put it in my stack somewhere, I can't share it with anybody else. Sure. But there, believe me, Jimmy, there's still plenty of bad music going around. <laughs> you're, you just you're, have to have an ear for it, I guess. Have to have the awareness. Um, Doc G, you, you, you certainly seem like you're doing well. Uh, what other adventures do you have slotted for yourself and want to accomplish, man? Um, well, I'm a motorcyclist as well. Yeah. Uh, I'm a, a, a kind of a naive photographer, and I want to combine uh, m those two things at some time in the future. I've got a motorcycle that's perfect for traveling very long distances, and I would love to take a, a long motorbike trip and just shoot pictures as I go as kind of a travel log, uh, if much in the same way as I'm doing here in Slovenia. Uh, I'm not very interested in doing a journal, but what I am interested in is taking pictures and showing people the, the, the visual beauty of things to be discovered. That's, that's kind of something I, I think about doing. I haven't ever seen the Northeast. Yeah. I've never seen New England. Uh, I've never been to the Grand Canyon. I mean, there's so much <laughs> of America that, that is still out there for me to see. Plus, there's the whole world that I haven't seen. I've seen like 0.0% of, of the world. And there are so many things out there to see. So, you know, traveling, motorcycling, doing some photography, that's the one thing I'm, uh, I'm thinking of. There's another thing, I, I want to start being a proponent of uh, planting things that bees can live off of, yes. because bees matter. And, you know, if we don't have bees, we don't have backyard gardens. So, I'll always do a backyard garden every summer and that'll keep me busy too. Yeah. Let the grass grow folks. Uh, Doc G. Oh yes, you, absolutely. You, you already know, man. It's uh, it's such a joy to document your story and to, to have spent some time with you. Um, thank you. Thank you for taking time. Jimmy, to be with me. It's a gas and I, it's my pleasure. Believe me, you're doing good work and I want you to keep it up. All right, folks, to hear this again, you can check out my website, jbkonair.com, or get the podcast anywhere that you get your podcast by searching my initials, J-B-K-O-N-A-I-R. Until next time, have a great day and a better tomorrow.